Last week we defined probably one of the most misunderstood doctrines, or really two of them, I guess, found in the Bible, and that is dealing with the aspect of the doctrine of the baptism of Jesus' death. And then we talked about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and we showed you how that those two are probably the most misunderstood teachings anywhere in, in Christianity today. You have one group of people who teach that from it, that you get baptized to go to heaven. You have another group that teach that when you did get saved, that you did not get everything that God had for you, and then you've got to get this mystical baptism of the Holy Ghost that kind of finishes you off, I guess, of getting all that God has for you. You now should understand those. And as we uh, come through Romans, and I told you, Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 are probably the greatest chapters in all of the Bible that really begin to fix a foundation for, where, uh, for what you and I believe as the New Testament local church. Great passages. And you're going to find that each passage uh, really deals with a different aspect and almost breaks it down uh, in, a, in a very unique way that you can begin to grasp the great concepts of how we live our lives. We're going to talk about that today as we get into the next section. You should understand now that the baptism of Jesus' death refers to Christ coming down out of the throne of heaven, coming down to this earth and dying, and then going back up and uh, to the throne of God and, and making himself the offering for your sin and for my sin. Because he did that, the moment you trust Christ as your own personal Savior, you become complete in him, as the Bible says, and you become immersed in the Holy Spirit of God. That's why, as we talked about last week, when we baptize, we baptize uh, by immersion. We put you down and we put you back up again. Baptism represents the death of Christ, and that's why, you know, that uh, all through the Bible you only find uh, adult uh, people who, after they have trusted Christ, you don't ever find any children being baptized, you never find any babies being baptized. It's all adults after they have trusted and believed and taken Christ into their heart. And the very aspect of why we immerse versus somebody who sprinkles. You know, it's a, it's a, to me it's always been a basic thing. If baptism represents somebody's death and you go under and you come back up, uh, I've been to many funerals, I've preached many funerals, and I've never seen somebody buried where they stood him up in a corner and threw dirt in his face. <laughs> it's always a thing where you go under, and uh, that's why we baptize the way we baptize. Some things in life are just very simple if you just think them through, you know. Now, we're going to start another section today in Romans chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 13. This passage begins a whole, another whole deal that will lead us into chapter 7. And what we're going to talk about today, we kind of got this going last week, but we're going to continue on, and we're going to talk about the absolute victory that you and I can have as a child of God in our lives uh, over sin. Now, I want to begin reading here in chapter 6, and you can follow along with me in verse 5. It says this, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he dieth, he dieth unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, that ye should obey 
it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that were alive from the dead, and that your members as instruments of the righteousness unto God. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus today, and we ask you as we come to your word that you take these verses, Lord, and, and help us to uh, dissect them today, help us to look at each concept, help us to take this passage, which is such a great passage, Lord, but we need to learn how to glean uh, out of these passages the great truths. And Lord, I pray with all that this church has done to, uh, to try to help people learn the Bible, now with all of the different areas, now that you've provided this building for us, something that, as I said last week, we, we weren't looking for. We were, we were where we were at, and we were satisfied and content. But Lord, you saw fit in your sovereign wisdom to give us what we have today. And Lord, uh, we, uh, we now want to take and use that to, uh, to use it as we dedicated it the first Sunday, Lord, to helping young men and young ladies, moms and dads, and, 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 and people to really grasp and understand the Bible with all of the classes, with the, with the uh, bookstore, Lord, and all of the things that we can now and all the resources that we can put in people's hands to help challenge them, to help them learn, to help them grow, and to help us better when we come to the Bible, Lord. And really it's all what it's about is when we read our own Bibles that we can b begin to do what I'm going to do today, that each individual in time will be able to read a passage of Scripture and then go through and define for themselves these great truths, much like I do today on Sunday. And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, if a Christian could live by the doctrines of Romans chapter 6 and 7 and actually apply the material in our lives the way that we need to and take those chapters and really break them down piece by piece and put them into our lives, uh, we would have the complete victory in our lives over sin. But here's the problem. The problem is how to do that on a regular basis and how to apply them. That's what church is for. As I said, as we prayed a moment ago, my goal is to get you to the place. If you think the day I got saved that I was able to understand my Bible to the, as I am to the degree I am today, not that I understand it, but better than I did when I got saved. If you think that I just woke up one morning and suddenly had a handle on the Bible and now could you know, get in there for myself and figure it out, you're, you're sadly mistaken. I had to have people help me just like you have to have people help you. I had a man make an investment in my life just like my job is to make an investment in your life. I had to get the right, my hands on the right material at the right time to read to help further me along by men who knew more about it than I did and, and always pointing me back to the Scriptures and that's why, you know, I've tried to create that same atmosphere. I only know when it comes to the ministry, I only know what's worked for me. I only know how to duplicate what somebody has done in my life into your life and help you get to that point. But my goal is to help you, uh, help you get it all together. And when you begin to study the aspect in this material in the victorious Christian life, there's one word that is key that you want to remember. I believe it's probably the single most important word when it comes to uh, the victory that we are to have in Christ Jesus. And that word is a simple little word, but it, it bears so much as we come through the Bible. It's the word consistency. Consistency. Not much of a word. In fact, uh, I don't probably, I may be wrong about this, but I don't even think you'll find that word in the Bible. But it's a word that when it comes to your life and my life that I believe is really the key. In the real world, with your flesh and my flesh, let's face it, 
uh, as, I, as hard as you try, as hard as I try, well, we will never be sin-free until we get our glorified body. We know that Romans chapter 7, and we looked at it from other aspects a couple of weeks uh, prior to this time today, we know that we have an old sin nature, and it battles back and forth with our new nature. And uh, a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night, somebody asked a question about particular problems we have in our lives. And I told you that the only way that you're going to fix whatever problem you have is to, first of all, identify the problem. Most of us don't want to do that. Most of us want to take a passing swing at really what is our issue in life. We really don't want to face the issue and deal with it. But once you do that, and be honest with yourself, then you start a war against your flesh. You, you separate yourself from whatever you have to do or that sin that so easily besets you, and you, you begin to focus on what God wants you to do and put that thing out of your life. It may not be easy. It may, you, you may fail. But the key word that we're looking for here is consistency. The Bible says that if we say we have no sin, we lie and do not the truth. Now, that gets confusing sometimes to people who first get saved because you hear me talk about the fact that God forgives you for all of your sins. And then in the next verse, on the next breath, I'll say, you know what? You're going to struggle with sin in your life. And somebody says, well, I don't Well, here's the bottom line. And you, most of you already know this, but price of learning is repetition. When you got saved, God saved you from all of the sin that was going to send you to hell and took your place on the cross. He now wants to have fellowship with you, but the only way God could do that was to separate you out from your flesh and his and your soul. We know that. Now at that point, he begins a relationship with your soul and your flesh. By the way, your flesh is never going to get saved. You know that? Your flesh is never going to heaven. That's why you got to get a glorified body because this flesh here is always going to be against whatever God wants you to do. And the victory you have in my, in, I'm, in my life, in your life, is to one that you, you understand that. You work toward a consistency. First John chapter 2, verse 1, one of the great paradoxes in the Bible. He says, My little children, these things, the Bible, write I unto you that you sin not. See? The Bible was written for you not to sin. But in the next breath, look what he says. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Now that's called the great doctrine of the advocacy of Jesus Christ. And I gave you those 12 doctrines or so a while back. The doctrine of the advocacy of Jesus Christ simply means this. Once you're saved, and we still struggle with the flesh, and when we fail, we have someone to go to God to plead our cause to restore that fellowship. Not that we have to get saved again, taken care of, but to restore that fellowship that God wants to have with us. You and your life and me and my life, I'm going to be very honest with you, and this is not a license to do what you want to do, but if you're a sincere child of God at the same time, I don't want it defeating you. I'm going to tell you right now, folks, you are never going on this side of eternity till you get your glorified body, you are never going to live a sinless life. You are going to struggle. You're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes. I told you last week, old Sabaka used to say, I don't care if you fall down a thousand times, the key is consistency of getting up that 1,001 time and keep on going. You can do that in your life, and you can get to the point in your life where you have a consistency. And today I want to talk. I want to take this section and give you some tools that I want to help you. My goal is to help you get that consistency. 
My goal is to help you get to the point in your life where you, you have that victorious Christian life. This is what the Bible talks about when you find the word perfection or perfect. Bible says that the Word of God helps you, makes you perfect unto all good works. It doesn't make you perfect as sinless, but it perfects you for the work that God has for you to do. Consistency. Now, for me, when I come to the Bible, and I've always had to do this, when I'm faced with a tough passage or a tough text or something like Romans chapter 6, what we just read here, uh, what I have to do is get the basic, break it down into basic Bible concepts so I can better understand it. And in this text, there's a couple of things that I think will help you uh, in your quest for the victorious Christian life and, and probably help you grasp the material a little better. Now, this victory that we're talking about here in verses 5 through 13 is based on two key concepts. And you want to put this in your Bible. And to me, this is, this is really where it starts for me. If you would take the Christian and you would boil or peel them back like a, an onion by layers or a head of lettuce and get to the real core of what a Christian stands on and what really drives him through his life or her life, this is what these two principles, I, I was going to say, would be there. I better say should be there. Because when it talks about the victorious Christian life, like in verses 5 through 13, it's based on two key concepts that's found in this passage. And you want to put this in your Bible at some point. The first thing is found in verse 5. And it says, we have been planted together in the likeness of His death. Now, the first thing I want you to see is that's past tense. That's past tense. We have been planted together in the likeness of Jesus' death. That simply means this. When Jesus died on the cross, He died for all of your sins. And when you got saved, you were planted together in the likeness of his death. Hence the, the, the death of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus' death and being baptized into his death like we talked about last week. So the first part of that concept is, is in a past tense. You and I, when Christ died on the cross at Calvary, he made a way for you and I to get our sins paid for. Now the second concept in verse 5, it says we have been planted together in the likeness of his death we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Now, you notice He didn't say there, He didn't say we shall also be raised in the likeness of His resurrection. He simply said we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. You know what that is? That's future tense. That's the day you're going to get your glorified body. That's the day that you and I will be delivered from what we struggle with right now in our lives. Now, there's two aspects that you have to see here. The first aspect is a historical aspect in the past. Christ actually came down and died on the cross that you and I could have, we could have the victory in our lives. And the thing that you want to look forward to is that just as He died, just as surely as He came and died on the cross, and I got in Christ's death by being saved, there's coming a time in my life when we shall also be in His likeness in the resurrection. Now, based on that verse with a past context and a future context, right now I am identified with Christ's death. Right now I am to be dead to the things of this world like we've talked about. Right now I'm in my, I'm in my, my, my journey for God and I'm trying to build my relationship from God. Right now, based on what happened at Calvary. But someday I'm going to be physically raised from the death and I'm going to get a glorified body just like he's got. 
Now, to me, this is the greatest single truth that lies at the core of who I am as a Christian and should lie at the core of who you are as a child of God. Because once I understand that great teaching, it forces me to think a certain way. That thought, that concept forces me to, to focus and stay focused on a couple of things. First of all, if I realize that there was a past plan for me to get me in Christ, and right now I, I, have to, I have to struggle with my flesh, but my soul is saved, but I know that there's coming a time when God is going to take care of even my flesh. There's going to come a time when God is going to take care of even what I'm struggling with. This is what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. You know what that verse is saying? That verse is saying that we understand that when Christ died on the cross, He made a way for me to get in. I have to walk through this life now, and I have to struggle with some things. But there's a, it forces me to focus on why I have to struggle with some things. And it shows me that in the future, God is going to give me a glorified body. You know what that tells me? Now, I don't know where you're at, but I have no love affair with life on planet Earth. I've come to the place in my life, and maybe you're not there yet, and maybe when you hear a, somebody talk about the coming of the Lord and Christ coming back and Him coming back today, you get that sick feeling down in your stomach, you know, because you haven't kind of got rid of it all yet. I understand that. But let me tell you something. I've been in this business for many, many years, and I've seen just about all the damage that sin can do in a person's life. I've seen how the devil has operated and how he has connived and how he has worked and infiltrated and done everything he can to destroy people's lives. And I also know that the only thing that's going to shut that down is Christ coming back and making every wrong thing right. Now, the thing that drives me on and the thing that understanding those two great concepts that historically in the past he made a way for me to get in and in the future he's going to make a total way for me to get sinless and be with him. I think the greatest concept about heaven, I don't know what your idea is on it, but my own personal, the great, greatest concept about heaven is simply this. I will be in a place that whatever I say, whatever I do, whatever I think, wherever I go, whatever conversation I enter into, whatever I involve myself in, for the first time will be in a situation that everything I do will exactly please God the way it should be. You know what? That's my goal right now in my life. But I fail miserably at that. That ought to be your goal in your life. And I'll tell you right now, you'll fail miserably at that. And the thing that frustrates me as a Christian is the things of this world that drag me down. Why? Because when I understand that there was one principle that in the past he made a way, and I look in the future, there's another concept that he's going to make a way out totally and give me a glorified body, it teaches me the greatest truth that gets me through tomorrow. Will get me through Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, next month, this month, next year. You know what it is? It's the fact that this cesspool I'm living in right now, this hellhole called planet Earth, this ungodly toilet bowl without a sanitizer, this, this absolute mess and amalgamation of sinful flesh that I have to put up with every day, bless God, it's only temporary. If I had to live... The rest of my eternity, looking at this and putting up with this, you see, it forces me to understand something. It forces me to grasp a couple of great concepts. First of all, it makes me focus on the fact when I understand the past and going toward the future that God, He, he made a way for me to get in Christ. 
but he's going to make a way for me to get out of this world totally and completely. You know what that tells me? That tells me that God has a plan. And it helps me understand that it's only temporary. It makes me focus the fact that I am a link in that chain of God's plan. You, if you're saved, are a link in that plan of God, a chain of God's plan. I also understand the world, the flesh, and the devil going to try to stop that plan. The devil, if you're saved here this morning, the devil is going to do everything he can. He's going to put every bad, rotten influence in your life. He's going to bring about everything in your world through an old friend, an old buddy, an old girlfriend, through your parents, through something at work, whatever he can do. He is going to try to stop you because he understands this great concept better than even you and I do. I know that once I understand that, I can't let that happen. Joshua said it best back in the book of Joshua when he was talking to the nation of Israel, who, by the way, were struggling with the same thing that you and I struggle with. They were going to do a work for God. God had a plan for them like he's got a plan for you. And the devil wanted to stop them as a nation just like he wants to stop you as an individual. You know what Joshua said? He got them together and he says, you know what you boys need to do? You need to choose this day whom you're going to serve. You need to figure out whose side you're on. You need to grab the great thought that this thing is only temporary. And if it's only temporary, it means that God has something that he wants us to do in this temporary time. You and I are the spoke in God's wheel of eternity and life on planet earth. God called that little parenthesis called time between eternity past and eternity future that just runs 7,000 years. Oh, we live our lives like it's going to run forever, but it's not. And the reason why we get messed up and think that we will and start to put all of our emphasis on the things of this world and things of this life and miss what God has us to do is because we don't understand that in past tense He made a way for you and I to get in Christ and He's going to make a way out. But in the time in between, you and I have a job to do. And your job and my job is to not get sidetracked. Don't miss the main event by going to some stupid sideshow. Life has a purpose. It has a plan. You and I have something that God wants us to accomplish. I said it before. It's no, it's no mistake that you're here. It's, no, it's, no, it's just no accident that God brought you into this fold. We as a church have a job to do. Each of us, we will only be as successful as a church as our weakest link in this church. And that's why I understand my job. That's why I realize that on a continual basis, I must make you look inside yourself. I must make you deal with who you are. I must make myself deal with who I am. We must constantly keep looking and moving and growing and using whatever we can to help us understand better what God has for us. Now, based on this great truth that God made a way historically in the past, He made a way for you and I to get in Christ and get our sins forgiven. Now, He, he did that, obviously, because God loved us and He wanted man to spend eternity with Him. But let's don't get sidetracked with just that alone. Let's also understand that He could have taken you to heaven when you got saved and spared us all this mess. Wouldn't that have been a wonderful thing? Wouldn't it be a great thing if that eternity starts by process of elimination? Wouldn't it have been a great thing that, that when, when Drake got saved last Friday night, immediately he'd have just been went to heaven? Wouldn't it have been a great thing when you got saved, that you, immediately you'd have went to heaven? And you've been up there now in a perfect place with everything you could ever think about, and it's just beautiful, and you don't have... Why did God leave us down here? 
I mean, hey, if you love me, God, and you saved me and you want me to go to heaven, what's the wait for? Let's get it on. And the reason is, is because God wants you to understand. He has something that he wants you to do. There's a purpose in your life. God's job, my job, the job of this church is to help you stay focused. The devil's job is to help you get out of focus. Just that simple. Just that simple. God has something that he wants you to accomplish. So once you realize that historically, at the cross of Calvary, you got put into the body, at that point, in God's mind, you got put into the body of Christ, even though you weren't born yet. He saw you in Christ, and then he sent the Holy Spirit of God to get you in. Show me you made it, show me you did it. Some people got in, some people chose not to. But for those of us that got in, he said, you know what? I'm not only going to let you down here in this world, but I'm going to give you a future promise that I'm going to show you that someday the sufferings of this present time, what you go through every day in your life, your ups and your downs, the struggles that you deal with, your family, your own personal, the, the sufferings of this present time, the price you pay right now for, for being the chain in God's, uh, the link in God's chain or the spoke in God's wheel, the price that you pay. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory. That's the day he's coming back. Because the time between point A and point B, you have a job to do no accident. I say it all the time. It's no accident that God saved you when he did. No accident that God put you where he put you. He could have put you anywhere in the world. He could have had you born anywhere in the world. He could have put you in any time slot in all of his time plan. He put you by his own design where he wanted you to be and orchestrated events in your life to give you the opportunity you have here today. And very frankly, some of you will take it and some of you won't. Now, based on this great truth, Paul gives us a, a, in this passage that we're looking at, we want to break this down now, Paul gives us a three-step process to help us maintain the victory and to keep our consistency. And it's really based on three key words. And I, I suggest that in your notes or your Bible, you build this around these three key words. I, if you, uh, and by the way, that Romans 8, uh, 18 uh, is a great 3 by 5 card verse. It's a great 3 by 5 card verse. You want to put that on there. That'll, that'll really help you. Because we're all going to struggle. We all struggle with different things, but we all struggle. Now, the first word we want to look at here is found in verse 6. And it, it's the word, I'm going to give you the word, and then we're going to put it in the context. It's the word knowing. The word knowing. And he says here in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified. Somebody said one time that knowledge is power. And I, I know that's true. Uh, I see it all the time. That's why they have secret committees in governments and they and, and have security clearances. Because knowledge is power. When you get knowledge and it's, it's specific knowledge, it kind of elevates you to a place. When you know something about some, somebody else doesn't, you, you, you can, if you're that kind of person, you can lord that over them. I know, I, I know when you go to Bible college, the, the Greek professors or the Hebrew professors, they will always lord over you that you don't know the Greek as well as they do. And they will keep you in check by that very same concept. They will only teach you enough that they can always stay ahead of you. And when you get up and would challenge them, they would pull out their little card of what they didn't teach you that you didn't know about, and they would make you look foolish. A lot of pastors do the same thing. 
lot of pastors will allow you to come to a point where you grow in the Bible, but really won't want you to grow anymore. I know a pastor that is a friend of mine in this town that uh, he, uh, when he goes out of town, he's got three of the most idiot stick people you've ever heard in your life to preach when he's gone. <laughs> These guys couldn't preach their way out of a wet paper bag. I mean, they are the epitome of bad. I mean, I have never heard, I have never heard three guys that couldn't put a sermon together. Anybody. I got to tell you what, we got kids back there, we got kids back there in the elementary division that are 9 and 10 years old that could put a better sermon together and deliver it better than these three bozos. And yet, they're nice guys. I'm not criticizing them. I like them. I know them. They're nice guys. They're not preachers. And every time they get up to preach when he's out of town or he's gone and they get up to preach... Uh, it's a thing where it's a disaster. It's a disaster. They're not well prepared. They don't deliver well. They don't know anything about the Bible. I mean, I take the youngest guy here that's only been coming six or eight months and puts you up against them with what you know about the Bible in most cases. You know why he does that? Do you have any idea why he does that? I'm going to tell you. I'm just, I'm just, this is called effect. Do you know why he does that? I'll tell you why he does that. He does that because he doesn't want anybody in that pulpit that gives him a run for his money when preaching. That's why. That's called insecurity. He doesn't want anybody. He doesn't want anybody preaching better than him. He doesn't want to come back from wherever he's at and have somebody coming up. And I've seen this happen. Boy, I've seen this happen. I've seen the pastor gone, you know, and he has somebody at preach, and that guy really cracks the whip, you know, and really hauls the mail and does a great job. And I've actually seen where the pastors come back in and some well-meaning child of God. I mean, there's no, there's no hidden agenda here. They're happy. They're excited. They got something out of it. They'll go up and they'll say, gee, pastor, so-and-so really did a good job. You know what? You can be gone more often, man. He, I really like him to preach. <laughs> Anybody want to raise your hand and tell me what that little scenario is found in the Bible? Anybody? Don't put you on the spot. Dave and Saul. Remember, they were all coming back, and they were singing, Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed his, what, ten thousands? What does the Bible say? It says, and Saul eyed David from that day. You know what that means? It means I eyed him. <laughs> what it mean? It means that Saul was just like a lot of preachers. A lot of preachers, a lot of churches will allow you to do something, but they won't allow you to do ever get out from under their control. You know why? Because they're threatened by you. They're threatened by you. And they're threatened because they don't know who they are in their self in the Word of God. And my, my goal around here is if you don't, in, in time, you don't preach better than me and know that book better than me, then I've done there's something wrong with, with, with my ability and there's something wrong with your ability to grasp the truth. We have some ability to have some great preachers in this church. We have some ability, some of you guys that I meet with on a weekly basis, you know, you, you, I marvel at your ability to grasp truth. You grasp things in a, in a week that I took me a year to get when I was your age. And it's a thing where, you know, that's it is. That's what it is. Knowledge is power. And uh, the more you know, in some cases, the more dangerous you become. In other cases, the more you know, the more of a benefit to the ministry you become. And that's why, you know, you got to be careful who your pastor is. I tell people all the time, you ain't happy here, you, you have an obligation. If you ain't happy with me as your pastor in this church, you have an absolute obligation for God to go find you a place that you're happy. Why would you want to be in a place you're not happy? 
Do you, do you think of your worst thing? Do you say, well, I don't like, uh, I, don't like uh, I don't like the dentist. So do you just go to the dentist every week because you say, I'm here? No, I don't want any Novocaine. Just pull it without any. I just like the pain. You want to grow? You're in the right spot. You want to develop your abilities to the great you can? You're in the right spot. You don't? You're in the wrong spot. There's no, no deal about it. I mean, nothing personal. It's just the way it is. It's the way life is. I've been my standard all down through the line. Do I, what, would you ever go someplace that you didn't have confidence in the guy that's teaching you or confidence in the church or this is what you want? Why? Why in the world would you subject yourself to that? Knowledge is power. And the more you know, the more you should grow. And that's so true when it comes to the Bible. You know, Proverbs and Psalms talks about the progression of learning, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And that's where you should come through in your Bible. That's my goal. You know, and the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, that fear there doesn't mean that you're, uh, you know, that you're afraid God's going to kill you. You got a lot of God's people like that, you know. They, they don't understand God in their life, and they, they, got, they walk around all day long thinking that God is going to, is waiting around a corner, you know, to give them cancer or give them a car wreck or, or, you know, or do some terrible thing or kill one of their children. But, of course, God doesn't operate that way. I'm not saying God won't give you cancer or God won't take one of your children or God won't put you in the thing, but he's not going to do it just because of the fact that you're an idiot. If that was true, we'd all be out before we got in. So you've got to look beyond that. You've got to realize that that fear there is not taught. I, I fear God, but I'm not afraid of God. See what I'm saying? I fear God for who he is. That fear he's talking about there is the fear that this country once had, even in an unsaved country. You turn to the century, uh, this country uh, had a lot of saved people in it, had a lot of unsaved people in it. When I grew up in the 50s, you know, when I went to school, I remember that at Easter services in school, they got in some preacher. He came in and preached about death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in the public school system. I remember the principal getting on the, on the PA system every morning and starting in prayer and reading a Bible verse. And he was lost. But you know what? There was a reverence for God back then. And, and God looks at that. And he'll bless a country just based on that, even though it's full of unsaved people. You know what? And this is going to, I don't want this confusion. You know, if you're a good, just a good lost person and you respect the Ten Commandments and respect God as best you can and do the best you can and, and you just, you know, you just, uh, you know, you, and, and you just a good old lost person and then you're somebody over here that, you know, is into drugs and this and do all this stuff and hates God and atheistic and destroys this and all that stuff, you realize that God's going to have a, a, a little better, you're going to have a little better time with God, the great white throne judgment and the other guy? I mean, what's the point whether you're burning at 100,000 degrees or 15 million degrees? But the bottom line is as simple as that, you know, there are some things that your life on earth will be better just because of the presence of your respect. There's no respect for God today. No respect for God today. No respect at all. You have PKI, you know, they just, they just, this country has no respect for him. And it shows. There's no reverence. There's no fear of God. And the Bible says the fear of the Lord in Proverbs, one of the wisest things they ever read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You know why? Because that's where it starts with your learning about God. And it starts with you understanding who God is. Not being afraid of Him, but fearing Him in the sense of a respect for Him. And then building it from there. That's why, that's why most Christians won't grow. 
Mark Twain said one time, he says, and this is so true, he said, it's not the things we don't know that get us in trouble, it's rather the things that we think we know that aren't true. And by the way, he was speaking about Christians when he made that statement. See, the power of God comes into your life based on what you know about God. Now, this is why I keep pushing you and, and, and making available for you all the things that we do. Because knowledge is power, and knowledge channeled in the right place will help you become everything that God wants you to be. It's incredible. When you understand how Christ's death on the cross changed your life, and you begin to put those things into perspective in your life, and you begin to know what He did for you, know who He is in your life, know what He accomplished in your life, then you'll, you'll, begin, to, you'll begin to take that thing. Uh, in our books back there, I, and I, I didn't know that He had changed this. When I first started, when I first started learning the Bible, I, I, got a, I got, you know, I didn't know anything, and I knew I had to get some basic things down. Back then when I got them, they were all in little, little pamphlets, and they were called, they were called, theo I, I forget what it's called now, but it's called uh, Theological Lessons about the Bible or something like that. And what, what they are is they're the basic theological doctrines of the Bible that really form the foundation. And back then, in fact, I think, didn't I give you a bunch of them? Yeah, I gave you one. When, when are you going to bring them back? How long have you had them now? About nine years, haven't you? Yeah, it's only been coming too. But did you go through any of those? Aren't those good? Oh, Gary, so I'm not getting them back. Anyhow, that's what you're saying, right? Okay, so thanks for the word. They're great. And they're basically kids what I started with. And they gave me the basic concept. Now I see he's got them back there in two volumes. But I'm telling you, if, you would, if you're a young Christian and you really want to begin to get, if you, now here's the word. The word is what? Oh, thank you. All one of you got that word. What is the word? That's right. Don't get it if you ain't going to do it. I mean, if you take, and I wouldn't even say buy two volumes uh, at some point in your life. Just get one volume. Because don't waste your money because you, you can always get the second. But what happens is you'll buy two and you'll never finish the first one. Then the second one will go to waste. But if you, a guy would take those things and sit down and, and every day, he, I mean, they're only, and the thing I like about them, they're, they're short. They're making me like two pages. But everything is concentrated with the verses. And you just start with that. And you begin to go through and, 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 and define that doctrine, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of this. He breaks those things down in a very understandable way that if you just worked your way through those two or three a day, four or five a week, and put them in your Bible, it would absolutely change everything about your life as far as building that Bible in your life. There's another one back there called uh, a book on salient verses. Now, John Busquette gave me his book, which I got to confess I never gave back to him either, so we're <laughs> even, you know, you steal from me, I'll steal from him, okay? And Pam will probably steal from both of us, but that's okay. <laughs> Bottom line is this. John gave me that book about, what, a year and a half ago, two years ago? Now, I've been in my Bible at that time probably 32, 33 years. And it was like, when I got that book, it was like, it was like I just started reading my Bible over again. It's a, such a unique book that it takes passages, and I, maybe, what, two, three hundred of them, John? I don't know. There's a lot of them. And it breaks down some of the hardest passages that you've ever found. And gave, it was like when I went through it, it, it took me a year to go through it. And I worked on it every day. It took me a year to go through it and get all my notes in. But when I went through it, it absolutely, like I just started reading my Bible for the first time. And it just, it just opened up so many different avenues. 
You see, one is on one level, the other one is on another. Now, I guarantee you right now, 95% of you don't need that book that I'm talking about. Maybe 98% of you. You don't, you've got to have a good handle on the Bible first to be able to understand that, or you look at it and, and uh, I mean, I, and the way I tell is if I, 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 I've showed it to somebody, and they'll say, oh, yeah, hmm. When I looked at it, I said, whoa, where's that been all my life, you see? They didn't even know what they were looking for in it. Something for everybody. But my point is this. At some point, you got to do that. you got to do that. Because knowledge is power. And you can't just get all your knowledge from me. There, uh, you know, I, there's, there, everything that you do in life is a, is, a, is a classroom session that you ought to be learning from. But the bottom line is the power of God in your life is based on what you know about God. That's why the Bible says the study that show thyself approved unto God. You've got to understand how Christ's death on the cross changed your life. I think in the studies that I did here uh, over the years, uh, we've been together, I think probably for, for young Christians, and I wish we had it in a book. It's something that, you know, I need to talk to Joe about to see if he could do that. Uh, I think it would be an incredible book. And uh, it's a, it's a, I think personally, when I taught it, when I went through that seven or eight weeks and I taught you about the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved, I don't know of a better thing I've ever taught for young Christians where many of you are at to help you grasp the concepts of where, what you're dealing with and where God wants you to be. Knowledge is power. And your knowledge, the more you learn about God, the more God learns about you. And it comes into your life based on what you know about God. And that's why you can't ever quit growing. I, you can, I've watched Christians. I've watched Christians all my life. And you know what? I watch them get in. They get excited. And it's true with some people in here. You get excited. You get going for a while. And then it just kind of fades off. And, and you, you someplace along the line, you just check out and you quit growing. And then what we do, and we all do this, because we don't want to let anybody know we quit growing. We try to fill our gas tank with what we did the last three or four years. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Knowing. Knowing. That's the first key word. Knowing that our old man is crucified. Understanding the concept of what it means, how you are dead and your life is hid with Christ through learning the Bible, learning what Christ did, and understand how Christ's death on the cross changed your life forever. You know, the perfect example of that in the Bible is Christ. It really is. You never notice how the Bible is filled with good examples and bad examples, and they're all there for us. I mean, you want a good example? David's a great one. Abraham, Noah, Enoch, Paul. You want a bad example? Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Judas, Simon the sorcerer, Ahab, Jezebel. But for the Bible really to be complete, you know what he has to do? He gives you all of those. And I guess you could probably say, if, if be safe in saying this, that there, and there's over like 200,000 characters in the Bible. Some of them, obviously, that there's more information than others. But when you would, but you would break them all down, I guarantee you, they all fall into one of two categories. They're either going to fall into a category that they are a good example, or they're going to fall into a category that they're a bad example. There'll be no in-between. There'll be no in-between. But for the Bible to be complete and for God to give us a complete Bible, He has to give us a perfect example. And the perfect example in the Bible is Jesus Christ. Do you ever wonder why God did it the way He did? Now, Jehovah Witness will never get this. 
if you've done any witnessing to Jehovah Witnesses and talk to them, here's one of the things they, they, they don't believe that God's a trinity. And here's the, here's, the, here's the stupid argument they give, one of many stupid arguments that they give. I've had them look at me and they'll say, now this doesn't make sense. How could, why, how could God come out of himself to be sub- subservient to himself and still be God? It just doesn't make sense. If, if, if Why would God be a servant to himself when he's God Almighty? And if he's God Almighty here and he's God Almighty here, you know what? There just can't be a trinity. Jesus Christ has to be another God that is not connected with the God. And they'll never get it. Now, obviously, God could have did it any way he wanted to. You know, God didn't really need me and you to preach the gospel. You know, the greatest, he didn't even need me and you to sing. You know the greatest singers in the world are birds. You ever get up in the morning, hear the birds out there, just beautiful. God could have fixed those birds that they could have sung Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, and you would have heard them all and got the gospel out that way. You ever see squirrels? There's more squirrels in the world in my neighborhood than all in the world. <laughs> we got little dents in the top of our cars because you know what the squirrels? They're dropping their, their, their nuts down under the, the acorns and the little and the, and the walnuts. It's not the acorns that bother you. It's them 20-pound walnuts that they drop off those things. I'm laying in bed here, tong, gatong, gatong, you know, hearing little feet run across the roof. You know, God could just easily fix them if they just, instead of dropping nuts, they drop tracks. <laughs> You're laughing at that, but you know what? You, I mean, I'm telling you the truth. I mean, you laugh all you want. You think he couldn't have done that? I mean, he probably got better results out of it than he does with us. And those little squirrels just run around, and you out in there, instead of finding nuts, Crackers things all over the thing and walnut shells here. And I go out on my, you know, I got one of those cement things that hold up my, whatever it holds up, coming out of my garage and goes down there. And I'll, every morning I go up there, if I'm sitting in the garage, I'll watch two squirrels come down there and just eat like a little table on my deal. I come out in the morning, there's seven or eight squirrel messes where they ate there. What if you went out there in the morning and there was four or five different tracks he left for you? See, he chose to do it the way he did it, but he could have done it anyway. He could have done it anyway. You know why God chose himself to step out of himself, to be a son to himself as a father? To give us a perfect example of what obedience should be. I mean, all the other guys are good. Abraham's good, but he's not perfect. Noah's good, but he's not perfect. David's good, he's not perfect. Paul's good, but he's not perfect. No, for that book to be perfect, it had to have a perfect example in it. So you know what God did? He said to himself, well, when he made everything, you know what he did? Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, we already studied it. By the invisible thing God made, he shows the things that you can't see. Because God looked out there in creation one, he says, I need a model, I need a pattern. It's got to be a perfect pattern. Oh, I know what I'll use, me. So everything God made is a picture of what he is. And that perfect Bible from a perfect God that wanted to give you me a perfect example, you know what he said? When I'm going to give my children a perfect example of what my obedience is, I, I, I got all these great guys in here, but you know what? They're all sinners and they all fail. I need to have one example of what a guy is tempted on all points like we are, yet without sin. You know what God did? God did it himself. That's why he did what he did. It. He could have done it any way he wanted to. God has the ability. God has the ability to do whatever he wanted to do. So he stepped out of himself, made himself into himself. His son took on the form of a servant and then was obedient to himself to show you and I how total obedience is supposed to be in a perfect example. 
so that you and I can't ever stand. Because I know human nature. If he wouldn't have put that in there, we'd have stood at the judgment seat of Christ and said, well, you know what? Every example you gave me was flawed. So he gave you one that wasn't flawed. That's why he did it. He separated himself out of the Godhead to show us as a perfect relationship what we should have as a son with the Father by him doing it himself. And you know what? As far as the Christian life is concerned, it's the same thing. Just as Christ overcame and conquered death and he arose, you and I have the perfect model how you and I can do it through his death by being dead to sin. The perfect example. Somebody says, well, I really struggle with issues in my life. I say back to them, give me five verses you've got in your life right now that are connected with that struggle you're having. And they don't have them. We've been in this now since Romans 6, three or four weeks. You've heard me talk about the three-by-five cards. I don't know how many times. I guarantee you this morning as we're sitting here, there's some of you that have a particular struggle in your life, and you still don't have your three-by-five card together. And then you're wondering why you don't have victory in your life? Or you really believe it's just going to come because you're going to grow into it at some point? Don't you realize that the perfect example and the perfect model when the devil came to Jesus... When the devil came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and tried to tempt him, don't you know that when the devil came up and tried to get him to do three different things that Jesus pulled out of his robe, his Bible cards? You miss that? Every time the devil said, do this, he come back and says, it is written. You know, after the third time, this is where the third time, the old phrase, third time's a charm. After the third time, the devil gave up. You know why? Because the devil knows if you're going to get the Bible in your life and you're going to have them on your 355 cards and you're going to deal with your issue, whatever it may be, and you're going to deal with it from the Bible principles and you're going to attack it and you're going to go after it, he's got no chance with you. He just has a chance with you folks who say you want to change but really don't want to do what you've got to do to change. That's the problem. I love you. I love you to death. We were in a burning house and I got out and somebody said, Hey, so-and-so's still in there. I'd send somebody in to get you. (laughs) I'd come and get you. Truth of the matter is, most of God's people really don't want to change. And I understand that. It's too hard for you. We are a society of people, saved people, who we think everything has to be easy. And let's face it, we're not going to put ourselves out for God. We're not going to. Because we don't understand the basic fundamental issue of past tense and future tense and the fact that Christ has a job for us to do. And we are going to let the sin that does easily beset us just mess us up every time we turn around. And the answer to that is simple. You have to know some things. Knowledge is power. And you sit there and say to me, well, I struggle with an issue. I'm going to say to you, show me five verses that you got out of the Bible that you're attacking your problem with. Don't sit there and tell me week after week. Don't let me hear time after time you've got this issue and yet you're not got it attacked yet. You're not a focused on it and you're not have your three by five cards. I'm telling you, this is what the Bible means when it says give no place to the devil. The place you give to the devil is what Jesus didn't do. He's the perfect model. When the temptation came, I don't care what it is. When the temptation came, Jesus simply said, he didn't argue with him. 
He just simply says, it is written. He didn't play with him. He didn't get philosophical with him. He just simply says, book, chapter, verse. That was the end of it. That was the end of it. And that's what you and I need to do. Perfect example. All right, the next word. Next word's found in verse 11. This word is the word reckoned. Only found two times in your Bible as far as the Pauline epistles is concerned. A couple of times in the Old Testament. I think once in Matthew or the Gospels, but not used in this sense. And the word reckon is likewise reckon yourself dead. Now we, we defined the word reckon a couple of weeks ago if you remember. And I told you that the word reckon, and that's why, you know, if you really, you get into these words in the Bible, and I'm telling you again, one of the greatest things you'll ever get your hands on is that Webster's 1828 dictionary that defines all of these words in a biblical sense. And you will find that, uh, that it, it, many of the d- dictionaries that we have today, the English is so messed up and so screwed up and so out of touch with reality of a baseline of truth, i.e. the Bible, that, uh, but uh, when you go back and you uh, get a, uh, an edition of Noah Webster's 1828, when Noah Webster was a saved man and basically one of the guys, uh, one of the main guys who wrote all of the grade school and high school curri- uh, curriculum uh, back at the, when our founding fathers, and he was an incredible guy. In fact, there's a whole section on him in, the, in it back there. And uh, when you go back through that, you'll find that the word reckon is an old word we don't use much anymore. You know, used to hear the old guys, and they say, well, what do you think about this? And he says, well, I reckon. Say, I reckon. You say to your wife, what happened to the car? Well, I reckon. <laughs> uh, that's not the same context, but. The word reckon is based on what you know, see. It's based on the fact that you know that your flesh is problems. And you've went through the knowledge is power. You went through the Word of God. You got the Word of God into your life. And you've come to the conclusion that you have a job that God is going to call you to do. And you realize that it's a temporary deal. You're not going to live forever. And you realize that God has saved you and put all of the things in the right perspective for you. And you're going to stay focused. You're not going to get your eyes off of Him. You're going to get them on yourself or your problem, whatever. You realize that you reckon, you understand that you are dead to Christ and you have the ability to live a victorious Christian life and you've come to the conclusion that you're going to run your life. Your life is not going to run you. And I can't say that strongly enough. Bible says it in the book of Proverbs. He that, you know, a city without, uh, he that hath no rule over his own spirits like a city broken down without walls. How true that is. And the problem we all have, every one of us in here, if we don't attack this thing and deal with it the way it needs to be done and reckon ourselves to be dead, is we wound up being run by our own flesh instead of us being in control of our flesh. Now, i got to say at the same time, how do you do that? It's easy for me to give you a Webster's 1828 dictionary on, on, on the word reckon. That's the easy part. But how do, you, how do you take that word reckon? How do you do what I'm talking about? How do you take and reckon yourself dead. What is the process? What is the format? What is step one, step two, step three? Are there are any steps? How do you do that? Bob, it's easy for you to tell me this, but how do I do it? Well, you take the knowledge that you get and you use it in the reckoning process. Now, I'm going to show you something here. Now, if you don't get anything out, what I today, probably what I'm going to give you today is probably more valuable than any single thing I've taught you. Because you know what? 
You can know all the Bible. You can know the Antichrist. You can know who he is, how many warts on his ear, and all these things. And the bottom line is, if you can't get victory in your life, it's the, at the end of the day, it's a waste of time. It doesn't matter what you know about God. You may be able to know the 11 dispensations, and you may be able to know all about church history, and you may be able to lay all this out. But you know what? At the end of the day, if you don't have the consistent victory in your life, so what? So what? So what? So what? You know, in a ship or a plane, you have three main people. You have a pilot. You have a co-pilot. You have a navigator. The navigator's probably the most important job on there. You can be the best pilot in the world. You can fly through all kinds of weather. You can get fly in cold weather when your rings ice up and you're so good you know how to get up high and get it off. You can be a great pilot that you can be, you know, in a cloud bank and still, you know, uh, know where you're at and fly upside down if you have to and your engine's cut out, you know, you know exactly what to do. You can be a great pilot. You can be a great co-pilot. You can sit there as a co-pilot and a pilot and you can be so good that you can, you know, uh, that you can, you can read what the pilot's doing and be a great asset to him. But you know what? You can be the greatest pilot and the greatest co-pilot in the world, but if you're a lousy navigator, you're going to wind up lost. You know that? Uh, we all know the story of Amelia Earhart. Maybe you don't. Amelia Earhart was from Kansas. you Jayhawk fan. And she was an aviator a woman aviator back in the 30s. And she had set all kinds of records and uh, she took a, she, she set on a, a round-the-world flight. And uh, she took a navigator with by the name of Fred Newman. Now, Fred Newman was supposed to be a really good navigator, but Fred Newman was a drunk. He had a problem with alcohol. And uh, she left from, uh, she left from uh, California and, and then flew from California to Hawaii, Hawaii to wherever she went next time, and her, la her next to her last stop, which was her biggest leg, and if you know the Pacific Ocean, I mean, the Pacific to the, I mean, the Atlantic Ocean is like a mud puddle compared to the Pacific. I mean, it's huge. And so she's over there, you know, someplace, and she takes off to go, and she's, she's got to land, and, she, and now we're talking about an island about the size of, of, of independence in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean that is just absolutely huge. And you've got nothing around you but water. And this is where your navigator, and, you know, and you've got a couple of factors. One, it ain't like when you, if you fall, if you crash into the Atlantic, you just get your little dinghy out <laughs> and paddle home. I mean, you know, you're in trouble. And it's a thing where you, you focus on the fact that you've got a navigator that in that millions and millions and absolutely millions of square miles has to calculate your fuel, the wind drift, your drift left and right, your headwinds, your tailwinds, because you can just easily burn up your gas before you get there and, and, and go faster in a tailwind. Where I've been places where I had a guy who used to fly me when I used to preach places, and we, when we get a, we'd have a two-hour, three-hour flight, and when we had a, we had a tailwind, we'd get the, we'd make, we'd make that, you know, it was, we, we flew there. It was one of those deals where I had to go preach and I had to come back that same night. And it was like a three-hour flight. And he had a little plane. He was a good pilot. And, uh, and so we got on the, get on the plane, took off down here at Lee Summit Airport, and uh, we had a tailwind of about 120 miles an hour. Well, what normally took us three and a half hours, we got there in about 40 minutes. I mean, it was like we were there. And, but coming back that night, we had to face the 140-hour headwind. We almost ran out. In fact, he was on fumes when he got into and, and he's telling me, we're flying. It's at 2 o'clock in the morning. Dark, cold. 
And he's talking to me. What, could you look down there and maybe if you see a place we could land? <laughs> I'm saying, what? <laughs> a place we could land. And he's giving me a tough time, you know. Uh, not that I'm nervous, but, I, you know, I mean, I, it's one of those things where, I mean, it ain't like I'm going to get out and walk home. You know what I'm saying? Then I asked him, I said, I, you know, and we're flying along there, you know, and I said, hey, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, what happens if we run out of gas? And he said, well, Brother Bob, he said, don't worry about it. He said, we run out of gas. He says, we have a standard procedure. He said, we, we turn into the wind, give us some more lift. We kind of come down real slow. And we said, when we get about 20, 20, 50 feet off the ground, he says, we turn on the landing lights. And, I, and he says, then if it doesn't look too good, he says, we turn them back off again. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, okay, yeah. Well, anyway, old Amelia Earhart got out there, and she was flying around the world. And Fred Newman, obviously, we never heard from Amelia Earhart again. One of the greatest aviation mysteries, if not a mystery, even more so than we know who killed JFK, but we don't know what happened to uh, Amelia Earhart. And Amelia Earhart, you know, uh, probably is out there someplace at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. And what happened was, and now, you know, when you got all the technology we have now, they went back and retraced her flight, got her last radio bearings, and there was even a Navy ship out there that picked up her bearings. Now it's pretty, pretty obvious that Mr. Newman missed, a, missed, his, missed his checkpoints, and, and they flew off and they ran out of gas. Navigator's important. Navigator is important. A navigator plots his course and gets you where you want to go. You know what he does? He does it by the stars. He takes one of those little transient things, and what he does is he'll shoot the stars, and he'll find by fixed points, get two or three of them, he can tell exactly where he's at. In the daytime, he uses, he'll use the sun, and he can even get it down where they, they can watch the wave movements and, 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 and tell the drift that way. But when, he can't, when a navigator can't see and he's in total darkness or maybe he's clouded out and he can't see anything, he reverts back to what we call in navigation dead reckoning. Notice the words, dead reckoning. If you're out in the woods someplace and you're lost and you have no compass, you can't trust yourself. You know, when people have been lost in the woods, they, they try to walk out. And you know what they invertibly do? They, tur- they walk right around in a circle and come back two, two days later in the same spot. Because people don't understand. You realize that if you're walking this way and you've got in your one leg is, a, is just a half an inch shorter than the other way, that you're continually on your line of walk, you're going to keep that leg going to pull you whichever way it is. And in time, you're gonna, it may be just a centimeter at a, at a time. But in time, if you walk eight or nine hours, you know what you're going to do? That short leg on this side is going to bring you right around in a circle. You can't trust yourself. If it's on the left side, you're going to go in a circle that way. You can't trust yourself. What you've got to do in a situation like that, if you have no compass, and I think everybody had to learn how to read a compass, but if you can't read a compass, what you've got to do, keep from going around, is you've got, to, you've got to get a fixed point on the horizon, maybe a mountain, maybe a peak, maybe a set of trees, maybe a rock formation, and then you move toward that fixed point. That in navigation is called dead reckoning. When you can't know where you're at and you're going to be lost, you focus on a point you can see. 
If you're out there and you're in the daytime and you want to go east and it's in the morning, the sun in your face is east. If you want to go west after 2 o'clock or you want to go continue to go east, when the sun gets onto your back, you're still going east. If you want to reverse the process, you're west. Just over the left shoulder, right shoulder, north and south. Whatever you keep it, but your dead reckoning is on the fixed point that you're, you're staying with and you know you're going in the direction you want to go, whichever that direction may be. You know, years ago there used to be a, a Bible group I'll call the Navigators. And they at one time were a good group, and now they're pretty much shot like everything else. But at one time they were a they were a really good group. Every Christian in your life, when you want to understand the concept of reckoning, and you want to understand what it means when it says uh, reckon yourselves to be dead, you got to do the same thing. When you're navigating your life through this whole world with all of its pitfalls, with all of its troubles, with all of its heartaches, with all the things that will so easily get you off focus and certainly get you lost in a sense, uh, maybe not eternally, but lost in a sense of what God wants you to do. You know what you got to do? You got to fix yourself on the horizon. Did you notice the only other word, the time the word used reckon was found in Romans chapter 18 where he said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that revealed in us. You know, as a child of God through this life that I have to navigate, you know, what I, you know what fixed point I stay on? I stay fixed on the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. Every day. Every day I stay fixed on that fixed point in time which is coming. It's like being lost in the woods and looking over there and seeing, knowing that I got to go east and that rock formation is dead east because there's the sun and I'm going to head toward that. And even though I'm in pine trees, even though I got a short leg, even though I can't do this, even though I'm up and down the hills, even though I'm confused, I follow my dead reckoning on that point and sooner or later I will get where I need to go. In your life, you know what, when he says reckon yourselves, Likewise, reckon yourself dead. You know how you do that? You don't forget who you are in Christ. You don't forget the job that God's called you to do. Hey, it is so easy when you want to sin or do something wrong to brush aside the calling that God has called you to do. It's not as easy when you're staying focused on the fact that if he comes today, you're going to stand before him and give an account of the judgment seat of Christ. That's dead reckoning. How do you reckon yourself dead? Fix it on his coming, realizing that you got a job to do, that he saved you to do it. Knowledge is power. Get to the place in your life where you understand what he wants you to do. Use that knowledge and then fix your dead reckoning on his coming. And don't get sidetracked. Don't get sidetracked. You move toward that fixed point. We talked about this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, a couple of weeks ago, where he says, uh, set your affections on things above and seek those things which be above. You know what that is? That's dead reckoning. That's keeping your focus. That's moving toward a fixed point in your life when you're going to get your glorified body. It's what I told you. Those two great principles. Historically, in the past, he died for you on the cross. He died for you on the cross. In the future, he's going to give you a glorified body. That's what you focus on, realizing it's temporary, realizing that nothing in this world is going to take that from you. You don't get sidetracked. You stay fixed. You stay fixed on that day in your life through dead reckoning. And you never, 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 never lose your ability to dead reckon. You are dead to the things of this world. Now, I want to tell you, and I'm just being honest, 
This is the number one problem we're all going to have. We really are. You can be the finest person in the world, and you all are. Most of you probably here this morning are saved. I think, in a very few exceptions, most of you have an incredible ability to really do something for God. But the problem is you probably won't because you will never learn to dead reckon. And your life will always become sidetracked. You will never, never realize that the, even though <coughs> the devil is going to allow you to go to heaven, he is going to try his best to keep you in the side areas of your life. And it's so easy to get sidetracked. You have to be dead to the things of this world. What does that mean? You know, the more you take a stand for God, and I see this all the time, and I, and I worry about some of you at some time, but you know what? Everybody's got to go through it. But I watch you as you, I watch you as you begin to grow. And I watch some of you have conflict, maybe with your friends, maybe with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or maybe with your husband and wife, or maybe with your family. And I watch how, how our people will come into your world and what the devil will do. You know, how many times I've, I've seen a young gal or a young guy get saved and they really start to do what God wants them to do? And you can almost bet on it. See a young gal come in and get saved and really start to begin to get discipled and really start to work in her life, and what happens? Out of nowhere, out of nowhere, comes some old boyfriend she had a relationship with 10 years ago, and you know what? And, it, and, and the devil uses that to get her sidetracked. Or in some guy's life, you know, uh, you know another gal. And it, it, just, it just comes to the point where it, you have to be dead to those things. You have to be dead to what people say to you. Let me tell you something. The more you start to serve God, the more enemies you're going to make. I just don't know how to tell you that. This world, you've got to get this through your head. This world is no friend of Jesus. And if you're going to be Jesus' friend, the world is not going to be your friend. And you're going to find, if you believe the Bible is the Word of God, and you're going to take an absolute stand in the world today, you're just about all by yourself. And you won't only get it from the world, you'll get it from God's people. And I'll tell you, you'll get it worse from God's people than you will from the unsaved people of the world. You know what? That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. Like somebody said one time, the more you go up the ladder, the more everybody sees your rear end. And boy, is that never true. <laughs> you can write that down if you want and use it a little later. <laughs> it's so true. And the more they see your rear end, the more they bigger target they get to take a shot at you. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. And we all worry too much what people say and what they think. Now, I'm not saying you can't do some dumb things or some stupid things or cause your own problem, but I'm saying this. The Bible says all, you all, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Just make sure what you're suffering isn't because of your own problem or your, well, your lack of dealing with your problem because you're going to get it enough. Every time I get, every time I get feeling sorry for myself, you know, because in, in the ministry, and you'll, you, some of you are already there. You'll get there. When you get into the ministry and you start being a public figure, you know, you get everybody in the world to take a cheap shot at you. And usually it doesn't bother me. And it's just one of those things where you go with the territory. But I'm human like anybody else. And, uh, you know, sometimes you'll get people saying things about you that aren't true, you know, and, 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 and just, just trying to assassinate your character. And, you know, I can't, I can't think of a time in my life since I took my stand on the King James Bible, ain't been somebody out to try to shoot me. Not literally, but, I mean, you know, and, and, and hurt me. And that's just the way it is. 
But when I get feeling bad about those things and feeling sorry for myself, you know what I do? Now, I, I don't know much about the Internet, and I do have a computer, and I do have an email, but I'm not sure what it is. It keeps telling me when it pops up, you have 9,443 emails, and I can't even get to where it's at. But anyway, when I get feeling sorry for myself, you know what I do? And you've got to do this sometimes. I go into the Google search, and I type in one name, Peter S. Ruckman. Hit. I checked it this morning before I came in. 55 pages. 55 pages of trash against him. 55 pages. Can you imagine going on the Internet and looking yourself up <laughs> and find 55 pages of people lying about you? In one section, somebody has even taken pictures and transposed them into a nightclub someplace. It's incredible. And I, I read his thing and I think, whoo, man, I'm doing really good. Fifty-five pages. Fifty-five pages. I couldn't believe it. And you know, you got, and, and yet, you know, I'm going to tell you. If it wasn't for that man and the stand that he took, I don't care what you think about him personally. I will tell you this. If it wasn't for that man and his stand, we'd be having an NIV in here this morning. There wouldn't be any King James Bible in America. There wouldn't be any. Single-handedly, one man. Single-handedly, one man. Single-handedly, one man held the line that you and I might have a King James Bible this morning, and he's paid the price for it. It's just that simple. You think it bothers him? You know, he's half nuts anyhow. And he's about as eccentric as you can get. I, I mean, when he steps into the pulpit, he's an absolute master of what he does. Outside the pulpit, he's a social retard. I'm not kidding you. I know the guy for 35 years. I've been out to eat with him. He doesn't talk when he eats. I've seen pigs eat more with more etiquette than he does. He has barbecue sauce on his shirt. He has it all over his mouth. He just eases his fingers. He, he, there's absolutely no etiquette to him. Oh, he's incredible. You try to talk with him, he won't even answer you. But you know why he won't? Because he's, had, he's been, had people do that and then take what he says and then do what they do to him. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a hermit who doesn't live in a cave. But my, 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 when he stepped into that pulpit and he opens up that book, there's no mind like him anywhere in the world. He is, without a doubt, God's man and the Laodicean church that has given us the Word of God. And he has paid a price for it. No question about it. No question about it. I heard him say one time, that somebody asked him about all the criticism. He said, do you ever go down, have you ever been to a funeral? And they said, well, yeah. He said, I, he said, I, I think funerals are unique. He says, you walk in there, and he says, you go down, and there's a body laying in a casket. And he said, people walk up, and they'll look at it down in that casket, and they'll say, he looks really good. <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> He's dead. 
he looks really good or he looks like himself. <laughs> how stupid. He says, you want to know how I deal with it? You know why it doesn't bother me? He says, because I've done too many funerals. I've heard people say he said, I heard a guy one time was up there, and a guy, I walked up there, we're just kind of standing around before I, before I, pre, uh, before I preached the funeral, and, they, and the guy and the guy, was, two guys were standing there, and they were saying, well, he was the biggest loss I ever saw in my life. The guy said, I'm glad he's dead. He's a liar. Somebody else said, yeah, he's the ugliest guy I ever saw in the world. The guy said, well, you know what, I, he, he, he was a drunk, he was a, he was a fornicator, he was a liar. You know what? There, no, when God killed this boy, you know, he did a great did a state service to humanity. You know what old Pete said? So I watched those guys, I watched those guys assassinate his character for 20 minutes. And old Ralph in a casket, he never flinched. <laughs> he never rose up and said, well, who are you talking about? He said, you know why Ralph didn't? Because Ralph was dead. And when you're dead, it doesn't matter what anybody says about you. When you're dead, it doesn't matter what the world thinks about you. When you're dead, it doesn't matter who's against you. When you're dead, it just doesn't matter. The problem is we're not dead to what this, things of this world are. We worry more about what people think about us than we do what God thinks about us. And we get sidetracked. We get sidetracked. We get sidetracked. And I'm telling you, you have to use dead reckoning in your life. Ralph didn't care. Ralph dead to what goes on around him. And in the Bible sense, you and I, when we're dead to the sin and dead to this world, it doesn't matter. Because those things will just get you off course and get you sidetracked. And we'll never, never, you'll never stay on course. Then the third word, verse 13. The word is yield. Yield yourself unto God. He says in verse 13, Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now, I'm just going to tell you something. You know what that word yield means? That word yield means to give up the contest, to submit, to surrender. And you know what we need to do as God's children? We need to yield ourselves to God, to submit to God, give it up to God, give up the contest with the flesh. You know, at some point in your life, part of your spiritual growth is going to be you beginning to do something for God. You have to take what you learn and take what you know and turn it around with something that you do. I don't care how small it is. You have to begin to Take what you do have and what you do know and then allow God to use it. If it's just helping with the Halloween party, something that basic. If it's just, you know, doing what you do around here. If it's just coming out and, 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 and saying, here I am, what do you need? I know you got this going on next Friday night. What can I do to help? Just tell me what you want me to do. I can't win anybody to Christ yet. I can't teach anybody the Bible. But you know what? I got to get into this thing somewhere because I'm telling you, it's a simple fact. If you're busy doing in your life what God wants you to do, you're just not going to have as much time to sin and do what you did before. That's a simple fact. Simple fact. Let me tell you something about. Let me tell you something about our human nature, and this is so true. 
I've heard people all my life say, well, I can't do this, I can't do that, can't come here, can't be here, can't do this, can't do that. But you know what? You ought to see the things in their life they do do. In other words, yeah, do-do is a good word, too. <laughs> because that's what it's all going to wind up in the dumbest seat of Christ. You know what I've learned with human nature? We find a way to do what we really want to do. You know that? You know that? We find a way. We say, well, we're, I got work. I'm so busy doing this. I'm so busy that. But when it comes down to going fishing or going this or going hunting or going anywhere, you find a way to get it done, don't you? You know why? Because that's a priority for you. Hey, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. You have to yield your memory. That's your hands, your feet, your fingers, your legs, your mind. You start with doing something for God, and then you stay focused with what you know. You get focused on, on the coming of Christ in your life. You use that dead reckoning, and you get God's righteousness uh, every day in your life, and you're consistent with walking with Him. Now, Paul gives some great examples on this. And in Ephesians chapter 4, and the last thing I want to show you here, and I want to go through this very quickly. I want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 and 32, and, 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 it, and show you how you begin to yield yourself. Now, while you're turning there, you need to understand this. Right out of the chute, when it comes to your flesh, you can't make a deal with it. Our flesh is non-negotiable. It will deceive you every time. You can't make a deal with it. The Japanese have a profound proverb. It says, man, take drink, drink, take drink, drink, take man. And that's the way it works. We think we can stop. We thought we're adults. We know when is enough. We don't. No. If there's anything that I've learned about the flesh, and it's true in your life and my life, the flesh cannot be satisfied. It just wants more and more. And this is the basic reason why many of you have the basic problem of no victory in your life. It's just that simple. Now look at Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read it here, 22 through 33. And this is some great stuff here. This is some great stuff. It says in verse 22, That she put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that she put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, wherefore putting away lying, speaking every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go, uh, go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. There's the verse we want. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed on the day of redemption. Another great verse. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now, you know what you have here? You have a great passage here that you all need to really take home and work on next week because this is a great, what I call the great replacement chapter. Replacing the things of the flesh with the things of the Spirit. Let's look at them. Let me give you a little breakdown here so you can put it together. Verse 22 through 24. First thing he says, put off the former conversation. Now, you see the word there? That word in your King James Bible is conversation. Now, somebody say, well, that's, that, word, that word's out of place because conversation really means lifestyle. 
And it should be, if you want to put it in all the new Bibles, it says put off the former lifestyles. No, no, the right word is conversation. You know why the right word is conversation? Because the King James translators knew that whatever your lifestyle was is based on what you say, because out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. They had it right. They always got it right. You are what you say. Your lifestyle is what you talk about. You talk about God all the time. Your lifestyle probably is walking with God. You talk about this all the time. That's probably what it is. It's just that simple. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we're supposed to put off the former conversation. And now, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen this or not, but there's a progression. And this is why you need to put it off. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, he that is a command panning of fools is a fool. You know why? Because you are who you associate with. This is why I try to tell you that when you want to do what's right with God, some of your friends have to go. Some of your relationships have to go. Some of the things that you're involved in have to go. Why? Because they're going to be a grind on what you're going to try to do. It's just that simple. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not on the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. You ever see that progression? See, when a man quits walking from God and he starts walking in the counsel of the ungodly, you know what the word counsel is? That means you start listening to what somebody that's ungodly is saying. You're not walking with God anymore. You're walking with them now. Instead of listening to what I'm saying and the Bible's saying, you listen to what he's saying. Or she's saying. Or they're saying. He says, blessed are the man that walketh not. When you quit walking with God, you start walking in the ungodly and you get their counsel. Now watch this. Blessed is the man that walketh not, nor standeth not. Now he's not walking with them anymore. Now he, he, he's standing, listening to everything they've got to say. He's not walking with them. He's standing with them. He's in their group, their crowd. He went from getting their counsel, now he's in the way. He's doing exactly the way they do it. Blessed is the man that walketh not, standeth in the way of sinners. Now here it comes. Or sitteth in the seat of the scornful. See, he started out walking, quit walking with God, started walking with the world. Then he started standing with the world. Now he's sitting in the middle of them. You can't tell them apart. And now he went from getting their counsel to getting their way, he's picked up their scornfulness. Now that's why some people that used to come to churches and hear good preaching and had a chance to get it right are out there today bad-mouthing God, the church, the Bible, and everybody else because they got out of that progression and they started to walk, they started to stand, and they started sitting right in the middle of it, and then now they're just scornful like everybody else. That's, it's easy. It's simple. You have to put those things off, the former conversation. And then the Bible says, put on the new man. And we've already talked about how to do that. And when we get you guys together in our little groups and we get everything working out, and we'll show you how to do that even better, you and the gals. Verse 25, wherefore put away lying, speaking every man the truth. Now I want to tell you something. You can't be honest with others until you get honest with yourself. This verse here may be talking about lying to every man the truth, but I want to tell you something. Truth starts with you. And you've got to understand, you've got to, you, you've got to get honest with yourself first. 
You've got to recognize that we as saved people have an issue we've got to deal with. You have to determine what your issue is. You have to get honest with yourself about it. And then in doing that, that is the only way you can be honest with somebody else. Everything else is a deception. Everything else is a deception. When you come in and sit down with me and you say, Bob, uh, this is, I want your help. And I say, well, tell me where you're at. And you tell me another story other than is the true story. You know what you've done? You've not helped yourself because you set me down a path that I can't help you on because I'm going one way and you're over here and you've deceived me. Maybe not purposely. I'm not mad about it. But if I'm going to help you, you've got to get honest with yourself and you've got to say, Bob, you know what? Put it all aside. I'm struggling with this right here. Now help me fix it. You'll never be truthful to anybody else until you be truthful with yourself. The next one, and this is a great concept. You need to put these on three-by-five card, this one. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. See that thing? Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Why? Neither give place to the devil. That's why. Old Martin Luther used to say, keep short accounts with God. You got a problem with somebody? Don't let the sin go down on your wrath. You've got an issue with somebody that's a legitimate issue and not your own stupidity? Deal with that situation. The longer you let it go, the more you try to hide it, the more it roots down inside of you. And you know what produces? You know what grows? Because you've got to hide it and pretend you're still spiritual when you're not. And you put it down in the resources of your soul. You bury it in the darkness. And you know what? When you bury things in the cellar and put them in the dark, those roots just go down and those roots turn into bitterness. Why? Because you gave place to the devil. You give place to the devil. You don't need to put those, that, those two verses on three by five cards. Look at verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the things that which is good, to use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Basically, that verse says this. Quit taking everything from God and give something back. Quit stealing time that God has allotted you after He saved you to do what He wants you to do for Him. Quit stealing it for yourself. Quit stealing it for yourself. Give back to somebody something else. Edify them. Talk to them about things that strengthen them. Labor with your hands, yielding your members. The thing which is good to the use of edifying that it may that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And of course we get to the point that we, we quit growing or we never grow. And then we just sit around and we, we get out of fellowship. We get out of sorts. And instead of letting God use us to do the things that we need to do, we just come to the point where we just sit around and do nothing and we steal with the time that God has given us instead of giving it to others. Let me tell you something. If you've been in this church two years and you're not actively working with somebody there's something wrong with your growth process. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, if you take that as a personal attack, hang on, here comes another one. I don't know what to tell you. There's something wrong. Two years is way too long anyhow. Now, I realize that, you know, I want to help you, and we got some classes coming up here, but let me just say something to you. And please don't take this, you know, I, I, I understand when I say this, I realize that there are some exceptions to this, not many, but I realize there are some, given where you're at. But if you've been in this church two years and you still haven't won somebody to Christ yet, there's something wrong with you. Maybe not wrong with you, something wrong with your relationship. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. 
You think God just allowed you the exception to the rule when he said, uh, you know, that he that winneth souls is wise? I'm telling you. And that's why I want to get, I think part of the problem is, is because if, you, if God, God won't drop somebody in your lap, because if he dropped somebody in your lap, you wouldn't know what to do with it. Now, I understand that a lot of that has to do with how young you are, but again, we're going to fix that problem. My goal this year is to have everybody in this church that wants to know how to win somebody to Christ ready to go, if you're going to do everything else. The bottom line is simply, my friend, you have to, you have to realize that uh, God has something that he wants you to do, and you have to give back to God. That's what he saved you for. He saved you to give back to somebody else what he has given to you. If he ain't doing it, there's something wrong. Then look at the next, last verse here, 31 through 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. Clamor is like clamoring around. It's like making loud noises, like tearing things up. And evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, that's a good thing there because the word malice, you know, malice is the context that bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking is in. You know what malice is? Malice is a spirit of hurting somebody. Malice is, is when you speak evil about somebody, you want to hurt them. That's malice. Malice is revenge. Malice is speaking out of both sides of your mouth, telling somebody one thing and then telling other people, thinking it'll never get back, something else, and exposing the malice that's in your heart, okay? Pretending you've got it all put together when you don't. That's malice. Malice is something you have against somebody that you're going to do it through either uh, anger, wrath, clamor, or evil speaking. The Bible says put that away. Put that away. Malice is the driving force by which you do those things. It's the spirit that you, we have that we want to say something to hurt somebody. We want to say something to discredit somebody. We want to allow something to go on when we know it isn't true or maybe it isn't right because of the fact that we, want it, we don't like that person, so we want to see them get hurt. You replace that with, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You know, the things that fill our lives and keep us from absolute victory. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, unforgiving spirit, evil speaking, all driven by malice. Replaced with kind to one another. I had a guy a couple of weeks ago came over, and he didn't go to our church. And uh, he was having an issue with another guy in his church. And uh, he says to me, he says, I, I said, I don't want to leave my church. He says, but I don't know what else to do. He says, and so-and-so knows you, and one of you sent him over to me. He says, so-and-so said that I could talk to you, and it wouldn't get back to my pastor. It wouldn't get back to anybody. He says, Cause I, I, says I, I got a place of leadership in this church, and I, you know, I don't, I don't but I'm just really having a tough time with this. He says, I, he says, he says, I even embarrassed to tell you this, Bob. He says, he says, there's a guy in our church that has done this to me and done that to me and done this to me, and he says, and I hate him. He says, I pray every night. He says, I God kill him. And he says, I think that's terrible. And he says, and he says, and I just, he says, I just can't get past it. And I said, he says, what's your advice? And I said, well, I said, I can tell you what happened, but I said, let me put a reality for you. You know why you better, you know why you better find a way to deal with him and make him your friend now? He says, no, why? I said, because you're going to spend an eternity with him. We don't think about that. You realize that, that your quibble, my quibbles with people right now, if they're saved, you realize someday you're going to spend an eternity with them? If Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 is right, and we're going to rule universes someday in, in the body of Jesus Christ, and I know I'm stepping way out there, and uh, if, the, if the mode in the Bible is two by two, you know what God's going to do? 
He's going to put a universe out there and he's going to take you and the person you hated in this life and put you together for all of eternity. And how do you like that? Wouldn't that be fun? Lord come over and say, now, okay, we got this beautiful stretch of galaxies out here. Let's see. Uh, let's put, uh, hey, hey, Tom, let's put you and Tony over here. And then who are we going to put with Tom? Because there's two. Oh, I know. Jim and Tom. Tom, do you like that? Yeah, I like it. Jim, can I hear you say the joy, 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 joy down in my heart? Of course, it won't be that way then because you'll have your glorified body, see. You'll always be the judgment seat of Christ and you'll be naked by that time, so it won't make any difference. But the bottom line is this. You know what? I told this kid, I said, you better get it, you better get it together with this guy. You better do what you got to do because, friend, you ain't thinking far enough down the line. Look ahead, look around, look behind, man, and you got your head up. You better look at this, Jim, and see this thing. <laughs> and I said, you know what? You're going to spend an eternity with that guy. You're going to rule and reign through eternity with him. You better make it right now. Then I walked him through a process, much like I'm giving you. A lot of times, you know, I've got sermons I'm working on. God will put a person in my life in counseling that I get to, get to actually use it, you know. And, and I, when I do it, I kind of redefine it and kind of tweak it a little bit by actually using it in somebody's life. And this was a couple of weeks ago when I was putting this together. You've got to replace those things with being kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as Christ hath forgiven you. You see, there it is. Apply what you know. Apply what you know. Uh, just simply start applying in, with somebody else that you're in your life what God has already shown you in your life. It's that simple. Now look at verse 30, and here's the problem. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed on the day of redemption. You see... God's Spirit can't control you till you replace these things in your life. And when you don't replace these things in your life, the reason why you have no victory in your life and the reason why the devil uses it because you give place to the devil is because you're grieving the Holy Spirit of God because these are the things that you do when you don't yield your members to God. Now, what's the great key here? And this is what I told my guy that came over a couple of weeks ago. This is the great key. And he said to me, he says, well, you know what? That's really good, and I'm really going to use that. But he says, there's got to be one key to this. He says, you told me that I got to know, I've got to reckon, and I've got to yield. But what is the key thing that puts that all into play? And I took him back to verse 23, and it simply says this, by the renewing of your mind. See that thing? You've got to get in a book. You've got to attack the problem. You've got to ID whatever issue you're struggling with today. And I don't care what it is. You've got to ID it. You've got to attack it. And then you've got to put these three things in. You've got to know because knowledge is power. You've got to reckon because you've got to fix yourself on the horizon. And you've got to keep moving so you don't lose your focus. And you've got to yield. You've got to start doing something for God. No matter how basic, no matter how simple. You put these three things in your life and let this church help you and help you grow and get renewing of your mind and get the things in there and focus and keep your focus and do these things that this talking about, I guarantee you, God will use you in your life and you'll become everything that God wants you to be. Well, every head bowed, every eye closed. We're going to be finished here in a moment, and I'm going to pray. And